actually treacherous in Nepal um, with the roads and the mountain passes and that kind of thing. Um, and they did <coughs> a range of ministry, particularly with a group of people that are um, in Nepal. They have a caste system, so there are four levels of caste. And then sadly, underneath the bottom caste, there is a group of people who aren't worth um, being in a caste, and they're called the untouchables. Um, but um, Sam and Hannah and the children have been touching them, um, so they're not untouchable. And uh, and God touches people as well, so nobody's untouchable. Um, but they've done a whole range of ministry and their home. Um, but some of them aren't well. Um, Hannah's not particularly well. Boaz is really poorly with a stomach um, bug, and it, um, Addy has been poorly as well. So um, when you go out there, you realise how hard it is to keep well by, you know, personal hygiene and all that kind of stuff. So do do pray for them because um, I think over time the kids will sort of toughen up, um, but um, but they haven't done yet. So just uh, pray for them, please. Um, on a Sunday evening, we're looking now um, at the book of 1 Peter. And so I'm going to um, just share some thoughts this evening uh, from uh, the first chapter of 1 Peter. Um, so if you'd like to find that in your Bibles or follow it on the screen, I'm going to read from the uh, NIV. So there we are in perfect harmony. So, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genu genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this is um, a letter written by Peter, who we know from the Gospels was originally called Simon. Um, and then his name was changed to Peter. Um, and Peter became one of the rocks on which the, our faith was built. Um, he became a significant person in the early church and somebody that got, God used 
um, to really establish the gospel and to spread it. Um, and he is writing to a group of, of Jewish people who have been dispersed from Israel. Um, and they're not just Jewish people, they're Jewish believers. And so they're kind of away from the heart of what is happening at that particular time. Um, and so Peter is essentially writing to encourage them. It's interesting that Tony was talking this morning about encouragement. Um, and, you know, that, that gift um, and, you know, that old-fashioned method of writing a letter. You know, I don't know if you can remember those days when you wrote and actually when you received a letter. You know, how just exciting... Um, Sam tells a story that uh, of, of his grandma Marjorie who would um, uh, send him a letter but she'd also send him a parcel to Bible college and they had these kind of pigeonholes um, and everybody would walk past the pigeonhole and always look at Sam's because she, they knew that the parcel, there would be 120 chocolate bars in the parcel and there were 120 students um, and so there would be one for everybody so you know not only was Sam anticipating this letter the whole of the Bible college was um, and it was just an encouragement and then he would distribute them and he would be for a short period of time at least popular um, but that anticipation and that encouragement that comes through the written word and, and okay you know we don't write letters anymore but we can still send texts we can still encourage people that way. I used to, it used to tickle me a bit, because when I used to be um, a deputy head at Hanson, I had a little routine. Every Monday morning, my first job always was to reflect on the previous week and to think about things that I had seen that I thought were just so good, and then I would send the people an email and just say, uh, just, to re you know, just to let you know, when you were dealing with that particular student, um, I just like the way that you went about yourself and, and the professionalism and the kindness. And, and so I would send a, a couple of emails to this um, effect. And, and so it became quite common knowledge that I would do that. And, and some people were like, well, I've had an email from the deputy head and, and I'm really pleased. And then you'd have these little grumpy people go, well, he never sent me one. <laughs> and just as well, because I'd probably just throw it back in his face because am I bothered about an email from him? Not really. And when I knew that they were thinking that, I would send them an email. Um, and I'd just say, just thanks very much for what you did, you know. And then I'd walk down the corridor and I'd see them and they'd be really grumpy and they'd go, thanks for that email. I'd say, oh, it's a pleasure. Um, but even in their faces, they were happy to receive it. Even though they had that grumpy exterior, like, you know, a def a, an email from you doesn't mean anything to me. But it did. It's encouragement. You know, it builds us up. And that's what Peter's going to do to these particular people because they're in difficult times. And we've, we've read towards the end of that section how they've got these various trials. And Peter's passion is to encourage. And, um, you know, we, we can be that kind of people. I was very humbled when I was at uh, One in a Million because I did an assembly um, called Marigolds and Walnut Trees. That was what my assembly was. Um, and um, the assembly was a simple one. It was simply, um, if you're a gardener, and I'm not, um, but if you're a gardener, if you want to have a plant, a new plant, and you want it to be nurtured, put it in with marigolds. Because marigolds are just really nurturing flowers. They kind of create this nutrient in the soil so that any other plant just benefits from being 
around the marigold. So plant one in and they'll just grow. But if you notice walnut trees, if you get a picture of a walnut tree, you'll notice that the ground around the base of a walnut tree is completely barren. And what walnut trees do is they actually send out a poison into the ground to discourage anybody getting anywhere near it and growing. Um, and so my kind of challenge, you know, was, would you rather be a marigold or would you rather be a walnut tree? Um, and uh, I was quite humbled because my head of maths, who was a very devout Muslim, told me that on the Friday when he went home after prayers, they had a weekly ritual as a family, got quite a big family. And when I did an assembly, I would send my PowerPoint that I did to all the staff so they could follow it up in the week. And he, every week, this is not without a word of a lie, he would sit his family down and take them through my assembly every week that were clearly Christian. Um, and he would say that every time he refused to help his children with any homework because he was tired, his children would say, Dad, are you a marigold or a walnut tree? <laughs> That's what they would say to him, you know. And, uh, and he'd say, I'm going to be a marigold, you know. And we can be those kind of people. You know, we can, you know, we know, don't you, there are certain people that when you bump into them, they will just be a pleasure. You know, Hannah Stockhill is one of those people. You know, I did the three peaks with her once because she wanted to walk the three peaks. And so I said, I'll do it with you. We only got walking within five minutes. It started raining. And it rained for the whole ten hours it took us, you know. And then we got on the top of Wernside and it was blowing the greatest gale. And I'm just like, why are we doing this? And Hannah's going, oh, man, this is amazing. <laughs> oh, this is amazing. You know, I'm thinking, really? if ever you want to do a difficult thing, do it with Hannah Stockhill because she will lighten your spirit. Uh, in a beautiful way. Um, but then there are other people, aren't there, where you see them walking towards you and your spirit just drops just by looking at them. And you just think, oh, how nice to see you. And you know that they're going to rob you of any joy that you've got. Um, so which one are you going to be? You know, are you going to be the marigold that nurtures and brings life? Or are you going to be the walnut tree that robs people? Well, Peter is of the marigold type. He's going to encourage these people. Um, and he's going to, he, what he's not going to do is he's not going to try and hide the fact that the Christian life is difficult. He talks about trials. Um, and we can't hide from that. But people that you walk through life with that encourage you um, are really important. So let's look at what some of the things that Peter is going to say that really encourages them. So he does his introduction. So he tells us who he's writing to. So these are the people that are exiled. Um, and he tells them that they are chosen according to God's knowledge. So God knew on the day that you were going to get saved that you were going to get saved. Nobody has ever surprised God who entered into the kingdom of heaven. He knew um, and he predestined that it would be you. Um, and the first thing that he did is when he saved you, he sanctified you. He made you pure because that's the only basis into which you can enter into the presence of God on a daily basis. So sanctification is crucial. It's something that happens when we're saved. And it's something that continues. Sanctification is a process. Um, and it's a process that ultimately... Um, makes you exactly like Jesus. 
And I think the sanctification um, process is quite an interesting one. Uh, I've wondered why it matters that we are sanctified and that we become more sanctified. Does it really matter? Well, it doesn't matter from a personal perspective because however big the gap is between where you are and where Jesus is, at the moment of your death, that gap will be closed in an instance. And you will be like Christ when you're in heaven. So to that extent, it doesn't really matter whether today you are more sanctified than you are in a few years' time. But it matters to the people that are around you. Because sanctification is a beautiful expression of the growth of God in people's lives. It matters to people. Because as they see you growing in Christ, as they see you changing and transforming, they understand that God is at work. And this is really important because people need to know that it is the work of God. I mean, we change, don't we? You know, we're all, as we get older, most of us get a bit more mellow and we get a bit more chilled and a bit more relaxed. But that's not the sanctifying work of Christ. That's just getting older. You know, there is a work of Christ that is specifically making us like Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do with us. Um, and ultimately, sanctification is, as it says here, is expressed in our obedience. You know, if you want to test whether you're growing in Christ, ask yourself, are you more obedient? Are you a more obedient child now than you previously have been? Um, because that's what Jesus has called us to. And he has liberated us from one form of slavery into another form of slavery. He's liberated us from being slaves to the world so that we might be slaves to Christ. And the test of our sanctification, our becoming like Christ, is that we become more obedient. But then he moves on, and in this particular chapter, this is a really sort of lovely chapter for me, because um, when, um, between the age of about 10 and 19, I used to be in a church choir um, at St. Luke's at Ecclesville, and I was, um, you know, really committed as a, as a chorister, so, you know, we would practice on a Tuesday night and a Thursday night, and we'd do two services on a Sunday, and we'd do weddings, and then I became a server and became... Um, crucifer and all that kind of stuff and it was but I wasn't saved until I was 19 and what was really lovely was when I got to the age of 19 and I started reading the bible I suddenly thought to myself I know this stuff in fact I know it off by heart there were chunks of the bible I just knew off by heart so every Sunday we'd sing the psalms but we wouldn't we wouldn't be like a proper church where you had to go through them from 1 to 150 we'd only choose the we'd only sing the vicar's favorites you know but but we we sang them regularly and we learned them and we used to sing anthems and we used to sing this anthem called blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who according to his abundant mercy had begotten us again and so i knew, and when i read this passage for the first time getting saved i thought i didn't know that that was in the bible um, and so it's a precious chapter to me. So it's one of those where if I want to meditate and I haven't got my Bible, I can always think about it. Um, but in this particular passage, first of all, um, Peter is saying, I want to adore God. I want to praise him. Um, 
And this is the one that is both the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, and the Bible doesn't teach that. Well, it does, because it just did there, didn't it? It said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And that makes Jesus the Son of God. And then it says, um, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we are told throughout Scripture that when you give your life to Jesus, you, you have been promised eternal life. That is your inheritance. And this passage tells us that we have an inheritance. Now, that's not unusual because children do. You know, most of us that have got children, our children will inherit something of us if we don't use it all for healthcare in the latter stages of our lives. But we are likely to pass on some of it to our children. They will have an inheritance. And we have an inheritance. And that is eternal life. That is that abundant life that Jesus has promised us. And, but it is a living hope. It is not something that we have to doubt Um, You know, when I speak to lots of people that follow other religions, one of the things that strikes me is the lack of certainty that anybody has about their eternal destiny. You know, when I talk to my good Muslim friend who owns the, the curry house that I use regularly, he's a really good man, he's a very devout Muslim, but he has no certainty of heaven. He has no idea whether he's going to make it or not. He is desperately trying to be good and kind and do the right things, but he has no certainty. And so I can say with him and to him, as I do, I have 100% certainty that I'm going to heaven. And he would say, I don't know how you can say that. And I would say, because of the resurrection of Jesus. I think the resurrection of Jesus is one of the most precious things that brings us hope, and I'll tell you why. Um... Many, a number of years ago now, I came across a, a survey where this, this researcher, this interviewer, was trying to get to the bottom of what would I have to believe in order to be a member of your church? That was his kind of research question. What is the most basic bottom line? Where would you draw the line and say, no, you would have to believe that to be part of our church? Now, he'd obviously worked quite hard at this question and had come up with the the kind of what he thought was the two most basic. So I'll go for the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus. And what I'll do is I'll ask the senior leaders of different denominations, if I was a member of your church, would I have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and the virgin birth? So he went to the Archbishop of Canterbury and said, would I need to be a believer of those two doctrines to be a member of the Church of England? And the Archbishop of Canterbury said categorically not. No, you wouldn't. Then he went to the leader of the Methodist Church and said, in order to be a, a, Methodi- a member of a Methodist Church, would I have to believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus? And the leader of the Methodist Church said, definitely not, No. So he then went to the Church of Scotland, and the the leader of the Church of Scotland said, no, that would not be a requirement. Then he went to the Baptist Church, and they said, no, that would not be a requirement. 
And the only person who said yes was, of course, the leader of the Roman Catholic Church, who said, yes, you would have to believe those things. But even the most basic, you know, doctrines of the virgin birth and resurrection of Jesus, but for me, the resurrection of Jesus is where my hope comes from. And I'll, and I'll explain why. If you go back to the um, tabernacle, and you know that every year at the Feast of Passover, the high priest would um, take the blood of a lamb, and he would take it into the Holy of Holies. Now, that was a little room at the end of the tent where only the high priest could go once a year. And he would take the blood, and he was not asking for forgiveness of sins. He was asking that God would pass over his judgment for another year. That's why it was called Passover. They weren't asking for forgiveness. They were asking for the Passover of judgment. God, will you not judge us? Now, I don't quite know how it worked with the high priest. And I don't know if he went in and God was clearly there. And whether he spoke to him face to face and said, um, God, this year Israel have you know, been unfaithful to you. They have worshipped on high mountains. They have prostituted themselves in all kinds of ways. I don't know whether he was that specific. But he wouldn't say, on the basis of this blood, will you forgive us? He would say, on the basis of the blood of this spotless lamb, will you pass over your judgment and be merciful to us for another year? Now, nobody knew what God's reaction would be. And so, and you know, you had to feel for the high priest because they were really taking the whole sins of Israel on themselves into the presence of God. And so just to be certain of what was happening, first of all, they would tie bells into his hem so that as he was walking in the Holy of Holies, you could hear the little bells. And then they would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he died, nobody had to go in and get him. You could just yank him out, you know, because nobody was going to go in the Holy of Holies. Um, but you can imagine the silence that must have happened at that time, just listening for the bells. We can hear the bells. is still alive. We can hear the bells. is still alive. And then when he came through the tent, Israel would sigh a sigh of relief and they would say, God has chosen to be merciful. He has chosen to pass over our sins and the judgment for our sins for another year until the Messiah comes. Because even in the Old Testament, they understood that forgiveness of sins was only through the Messiah. But he had not yet come. And so until he came, all Israel could ask for is Passover of judgment. But of course, when Christ comes, we can ask for forgiveness and we receive. And we know that um, all those saints believed, all the saints before Christ believed in Christ, and that's where their forgiveness came. So you've got that really unique thing. Now, I have this view, and you might not agree with me, and that's okay, but I often used to, as a young person, I used to think, what happened to Jesus in those three days after his death and before his resurrection? I used to think, what, what, what happened? What, you know, his body was clearly in the tomb, but his spirit was still alive. Where, where was that? 
And I believe that, that what Jesus did in the Spirit was he made the high priestly journey to his Father. I personally believe that he made that high priestly journey. And he took to his Father his own blood. Because what you've got to understand is that the blood of Christ is first and foremost for God. When Jesus shed his blood, he first and foremost shed it for his Father. Now we are the beneficiaries of that. We receive salvation and the cleansing through the, the blood of Christ. But the blood of Christ is predominantly shed, first of all, for his Father. And my view is that Jesus took the high priestly, his own blood, and presented it to his Father. He walked into heaven. And I think at that moment in time, all of heaven would have been quiet and they would have been listening. And Jesus this time said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and he would offer his blood to the Father. And heaven would have been completely, I'm being dramatic here, but I used to be a drama teacher, <laughs> but heaven would have been silent, I believe. And on the moment that Jesus came back from the presence of the Father into the presence of the angel, I think it would have been like the biggest party on earth. Everybody would have been shooting those little things in the air and saying, because what they knew is that when Jesus came out of the Father's presence, without his blood, his Father had said, your blood avails. And when Jesus came back and was resurrected, for me, it is the greatest proof that the gift of his blood has been accepted by his Father. And that my faith is made on solid ground because God would not have let Jesus come back out of heaven had it have not been good enough. But it was. And so he walked out of heaven. And the fact that Jesus is resurrected, is for me 100% certainty that his blood avails. I have no doubts, not, an, not an, a smidgen of doubt, that the blood of Christ avails for sin and that forgiveness is available through it because he took it to the Father and the Father said, Jesus, I will accept your blood as the remission of sins for all the world, for those who will exercise faith in me. Uh, and I think that's a remarkable thing. And my whole confidence, um, and I've got all kinds of faults as a Christian, and, and if you, I could bore you to death with them all, but one of the things I don't, one of the things I've never struggled with, I've never struggled with doubts about God and his love for me. Uh, I struggle with all kinds of things, but not that. But the reason I don't is because I'm absolutely confident in the resurrection of Jesus as being the proof that Jesus' blood avails for us. Uh, and I wake up every day completely convinced that God loves me um, because I know that the resurrection is proof enough for us all that the forgiveness of sins is reliable. And I hope that that's an encouragement to you. I want it to be because I don't want you to be um, I don't know when I'm going to heaven. No, you are. 
If you've given your life to Christ, his blood avails. Let's wear that one to rest and let's deal with all the other difficulties that we've got. Now, um, so that's the key thing I wanted to say this evening. And I know that I'm not going to unpick this passage because it's too, it's too rich. But I wanted you to pick on that resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that's why you have a living hope. Um, and it's not a living hope that has any doubts in it. If Jesus had not resurrected, we would have, I would have been preaching this evening. I am not sure whether Jesus' blood avails. I don't know. But the fact that he resurrected and came back is proof enough that God accepted it. Then he goes on to say that we'll have an inheritance in verse 4 that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is, in, is kept in heaven for you who through fear, faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now again, I think that this is an important passage. You know, we have an inheritance, and that inheritance is being reserved for us in heaven. And I think that it's an important passage because I think that if you look at that kind of um, preaching, that, we, particularly in America, that, that's um, typified by what's called health and wealth, I think they need to read this passage. Because what the health and wealth preachers tell us is that our inheritance can be brought forward and experienced in this world. They're telling us that what we will experience in terms of good health and relationship with God, but particularly the good health, you can experience now. But I think that this passage says, no, that's not true. Actually, those things are reserved for us in heaven. They're not things that we can experience right now. And I think it's almost a bit like... Um, you know the parable of the, um, the two sons, the prodigal son, and one son saying, I want my inheritance now. I want it now. Now, most of us understand that inheritance um, is something that you gain on the death of somebody else in their time. You don't demand it whilst they're alive. It is reserved for you for another time. And I think that what health and wealth preachers do is they are, they are robbing heaven and they are trying to bring to heaven things on earth that don't belong on earth. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe that God is a God who heals. I really do believe that. And my experience is long enough now as a Christian to see some people experience remarkable things and remarkable healings. But I've also been long enough to see that um, I have been involved in some significant prayer for some people who are in heaven now. Um, and sometimes people, almost in exactly the same circumstances, on the one hand they get healed, and the one, on the other hand they don't. And I think that what I did, I prayed the same. But I had a different outcome. Um, but the health and wealth preachers would tell you that everybody is entitled to healing now. And they often misquote Isaiah 53 about by his stripes we are healed. And I think that what they're doing is they don't understand that there are certain things that are reserved for us in heaven that God's keeping for us. And that will be perfect health. You know, for God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. There'll be no more sorrow, no pain, no crying. 
neither will there be any more death, for all those things will pass away. There is a time when that will happen, but that is when you get to heaven. And it is not a blank entitlement to every believer that they will experience health and wealth on this side of heaven. And I think that often what people are doing is they are taking something that belongs in heaven and trying to yank it out of heaven and bring it to earth. Now, you know, we're all getting older and we all get those aches and pains and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, you know, since I've set up the coffee shop, I can hardly walk at the end of the day because I'm on my feet all day. Uh, I'm absolutely physically exhausted. Um, <clears throat> but I know that there will be a time when I won't feel like that. Um, and that'll be in heaven. You know, there'll be a time when, you know, you know, I don't have to talk about people getting diarrhea and people dying of cancer and all that kind of stuff. It will end. And God's keeping that for us. Now, that to me is a great encouragement because, um, because I see people in great difficulties and with great trials. Um, and I personally don't think it is a conflict to be able to pray that God would alleviate their pain and their difficulty, but recognising that in his sovereign will, he chooses sometimes not to do that. Now, I know health and well people tell you, well, that's just rubbish because you've no faith. You know, you've got to have 100% faith. I think I've got 100% faith, but I've also got balanced alongside it 100% reality that goes together, that recognises that God... You know, God's ability to heal is not within it's not ever in question. <clears throat> God can do those things. But sometimes in his wisdom he chooses not to do. And um, maybe when I get to heaven, maybe I'll, I'll be able to ask him why. Um, and maybe I'll be bright enough then because something's going to happen to my brain, I think, when I get to heaven. And I might understand it too. Um, but I don't understand it right now. So in faith, I just accept that these are things, how things are. That God exhorts us to pray. God exhorts us to pray believing that, that things can change and that God can heal. But doesn't always. Um, am I, I'm okay with that. Because that makes my difficult life and the challenges that I have, it makes it manageable. Because it's for a period, it's for a season. And the season is this side of the grave. Um, and on the other side, there's none of this. And so, rest assured, your eternal life is secure. You know, the, all the words in here, if you had time to look at the words that Peter uses, are all military terms. They're all about garrisoning people. They're all about keeping. They're all about power. They're all about what soldiers do. You know, and generally speaking, when you give something to a group of soldiers, they're pretty good at keeping it. Um, but God is even so much more able to keep our inheritance. And in the light of that, in verse 6, we find, In all this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come that the pre 
so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. You know, these difficulties, believe it or not, are, are for your good. You know, generally speaking, if we're trying to find the value of something like a metal, we usually um, expose it to some kind of heat or some kind of <coughs> test. But that test troubles the metal. And in troubling the metal, it makes you work out whether it's genuine or not. And what God is trying to do for you um, is he's trying to help you understand that your faith is genuine. And so these difficulties are not things that we should be shirking and scared of. We should be rejoicing in them because ultimately, when you come through a difficult period and you come out the other side, you think to yourself, how amazing is God and how faithful is he and how genuine is my faith because it has stood the test of this challenge and I don't know what motivates you um, to do things for God um, I've often thought about this because I, I often think surely the purest form of motivation would be that just that you love God you do stuff because you just love God but then when I read the New Testament there are other motivations that the, 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 the Bible lays before us not least that you are going to gain a reward in heaven now I don't know if you I don't know if you think that's a, a bit of an unwholesome motivator, you know, that you're gonna have a reward in heaven. When I used to speak to young people, I would often speak about this because this was a motivating factor for me. And I used to say to them, you know, whenever you're doing something for God, it kind of puts a little jewel in your crown. And the more good things you do, the bigger your crown becomes, and the more jewels it's got in it. And I used to think, is it a good thing? Would it be good to go to heaven? I'd say, I think it's good. I want to go to heaven. I mean, the Queen was talking about the crown this week, wasn't she, and saying it's worth five pounds, uh, it weighs five pounds and it's heavy on the neck. Well, I want one of those when I go to heaven. You know, I want one that has to be craned off me because it's so big and so heavy and so jeweled. Because do you know what we're all going to do with our crowns when we get to heaven? We're going to cast them before Jesus. Well, you cast in your little ring if you want, but I want to cast in a massive one, you know, a really big one, and say, Jesus, um, I, I loved you so much that I did all this stuff for you, and I've got this crown. Um, well, maybe that doesn't motivate you, but, um, but God wants us to be motivated by the things that we do for him in faith. And he says that though you, in verse 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, every day is a day nearer to heaven. And every day nearer to heaven is a day nearer to the fullest expression of your salvation. You know, and when we go to funerals of believers, that's why we rejoice. Because they have received the fullness of their salvation. And if we're thinking about heaven, we ought to be a little bit jealous that they've gone before us 
and that they are experiencing the fullness of their salvation. That's what God promises you. You won't have it this side of the grave. You won't have all the blessings. But don't worry. God's in heaven. He's reserving them for you. He's looking after them. And you will have that abundant, eternal life. So keep going. Things can be tough. Things can be hard. You might be experiencing difficulties, but keep going. There is light at the end of the tunnel, and that light at the end of the tunnel is called heaven. Amen.